Hello and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast with Jim Hugh of the Universal Income Project. I'm Owen Poindexter. And Jim, we have an excellent guest to talk to today. But first, to set the scene for this a little bit, we wanted to chat about state-level basic income initiatives. Yeah, so I get asked all the time, people say basic income, huge, radical policy. It seems almost impossible that we could pass it if we're going to get there. How do we start taking some smaller steps along the way? What are the policy proposals that will gradually move us towards a place where it makes sense to, to go forward with a basic income? And so a great one of those is um, a smaller universal income. So basic income, we talk about providing enough money that people are actually able to cover all of their basic needs. Universal income, also money given unconditionally to everyone, same amount, but it doesn't have to be quite as much. You can have a universal income that's only a couple hundred dollars a month or even less. Um, so if you have something like that, it becomes much less expensive. It's much more feasible to look at policy proposals around that uh, that could happen in the, in the much shorter term just because they would cost so much less. Um, and for something like that, you can also look not just at the national level, but even at the state and local level, thinking about uh, what could what could be provided, what could be done with people in a given town or even in a given state. So our guest today is going to be talking about a specific form of universal income, uh, which is a carbon dividend. Um, so yeah, we are talking to Camila Thorndike of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, or CCAN. She's their carbon pricing coordinator, and she's been involved in some very exciting uh, initiatives in the Oregon state level. So welcome, Camila. Thanks so much for having me. So why don't you, you just start by telling us a little bit about what you've been working on in the basic income slash environmental space. Sure. So I've been working on climate issues for the past 11 years or so, and about four years ago was introduced to the uh, idea of putting a price on climate pollution, sometimes called carbon pricing, uh, the mechanisms to do so or a carbon tax or cap and trade um, and you might have heard of the carbon fee and dividend proposal in particular which has gained a lot of traction nationally and was introduced to me while I was still in my home state of Oregon um, and I ended up co-founding a statewide campaign there um, organization called Oregon Climate and we introduced um, three fee and dividend proposals to the legislature Actually, two were a fee and, and dividend, and two, one was a cap and, and dividend. Um, the basic idea is that unless the price of fossil fuels reflects their true cost to society, um, we're going to keep using them because they're so powerful and ubiquitous and um, convenient. And yet, uh, when we go and fill up our tank of gas for $2.50, that is not reflecting the, the real impacts of using that product, which at this point is, you know, catastrophic climate change. And on the daily level, you might see, you know, asthma or a superstorm or uh, failed crops, whatever, whatever we're looking at because of the amount of carbon we've pumped into the atmosphere. So the idea goes, make polluters pay for the true cost of their product. And when you assess a fee on that product, you'll collect a bunch of money chop it up into as many you know residents or citizens or however you want to do it um, exist in the jurisdiction that you're taxing and then um, send it back send it back to everybody so that 
everyone can deal with those increased costs and so that it reflects the fact that we all um, share this atmosphere and share natural resources and are all paying the costs of climate change. So that sounds like a really creative idea to tackling really two things at once, dealing with climate change, but also then helping to, to do some redistribution on income. Um, what, what kind of reaction have you gotten? What have, what, how have different groups viewed this? What, is, what has been the responses? Sure. So it, it really varies. Um, I now actually am co-directing a national project, which has come out of the Oregon campaign, and we are taking our model of engaging millennials um, on this idea and applying it on campuses nationwide in partnership with an organization called the Years of Living Dangerously, which is producing a really high production media series on, on climate change. Um, and now in the title that I was introduced with, I am leading a, a fee and dividend campaign for the city of the District of Columbia itself. Um, and and so it really it varies how people receive this idea based on a number of things. I'd say the first factor is because we're coming at it from a climate lens, do they, number one, think that uh, putting a price on pollution is... Um, an effective solution, let alone the most effective solutions, as many many experts agree. Um, and number two, um, do they believe that the basically do they believe that the government should retain those funds um, instead of sending them back to people? Um, and that's really where the politics get really dicey because um, you break down along these very traditional fissures around government size. Um, and so navigating that as a progressive, is very interesting because um, the fee and dividend itself is so economically equitable and so by its nature inclusive. I mean, it's 100% inclusive, um, and yet you'll find uh, many critiquing the idea in not being progressive enough, <laughs> and honestly, that perplexes me. I'm not sure what could be more progressive, but um, in many cases, people would prefer to retain the funds for infrastructure projects or job training if you're coming from kind of a union perspective or um, targeted projects that only benefit some communities. So it's interesting that your latest project is focusing on millennials. Do you find that you are getting a, a better, more active response from you know the 20s and 30s age group? Yes, definitely. Um, we've found that young people get it right away. They, I mean, we feel saddled with the burden of climate change as it is and recognizing that the costs um, to our future are just astronomical and looking at how disasters have been dealt with so far, I mean, so many funds are either swept um, for general purposes or never reach the communities or households that really need them. Um, and kind of in a broader philosophical sense, really feeling the reality of this being one globe, one world that, you know, we either all sink or swim together. And the the dividend or the rebate is just so beautifully part of um, a worldview that believes that we really are all in this together and that a simple, transparent um, solution is the best way to advance actual um, justice because if it's easy enough, number one, to explain, then anybody can become an advocate. It doesn't need to be some complicated, you know, 1,200 page bill that 
only a few lobbyists get control over in this age where mistrust of government is already so high. And number two, once enacted, we can all hold the government accountable for delivering on those benefits. You'll know what size your check is going to be, and everybody's going to get the same amount. And so it's just built to be um, a vehicle for, for accountability and transparency right off the bat. And I think that that really appeals to um, our generation. Yeah, definitely. So who is really pushing for this right now? You, you obviously mentioned the groups that you've worked with. Are there any well-known champions out there that are fighting to make this happen as well? Yeah, so the organization that inspired us, um, it's called the Citizens Climate Lobby, or CCL, and they're um, a volunteer-driven organization. They have chapters in almost every single congressional district in the country. Um, but the reason that we started our, our own group was looking for ways to engage younger people. Um, they're fantastic at recruiting and mobilizing um, a certain cohort, but they generally tend to be fairly well-educated, um, close to or <laughs> fully retired um, individuals, and we wanted to bring in more creative um, organizing methods and reach different different groups. Um, I'd say we're definitely building to, uh, we have a long ways to go until we're as uh, numerous as, as CCL members, but we work really closely with them. There's been an, many um, carbon tax proposals introduced in Congress over the last couple of years, and um, some of them are very close to 100% uh, fee and dividend. Um, the state campaigns, however, have advanced further. So you have state legislators in um, formerly in Oregon, I'd say the carbon pricing momentum has really slowed down there. Um, and, but also in Massachusetts and Vermont, those are two of the states that probably have the best prospect of of passing anything in the in the immediate future. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about what reception this has gotten at the legislature level. So, is this something that you think state legislatures, at least the you know liberal New England ones, are are open to? Um, yes, I think that it often depends on basically who presents the idea of carbon pricing first. It's so much a matter of just um, how you frame it and what those first impressions are because uh, it's still a, a pretty new idea for many advocates and certainly for the public at large. Um, I obviously haven't been on the ground in Vermont and Massachusetts, but they've come up in Massachusetts through a, a grassroots campaign and organization, much much like Oregon Climate was founded by um, a few people who got to be in their bonnet, um, Climate Exchange uh, was founded by Jessica Langerman in Massachusetts, and then uh, Vermont Perg and, and Vermont are, are advancing these ideas. Um, and they are working from the, I'd say, expert consensus of those looking at carbon pricing that agree that at least for um, a couple of the bottom quintiles, you have to have something like a dividend going back um, because carbon pricing alone or without careful revenue treatment is um, regressive. Lower income households spend a greater fraction of their budgets on energy and so you, you have to make them at least whole. Um, and so most carbon pricing uh, policies even on the books have again some form of a dividend going back. In British Columbia um, there's a small uh, amount that's sent to rural households. They, however, chose to offset other 
corporate corporate and personal income taxes. Um, so that's where most of the equity is taken care of in, in BC. California has cap and trade. Um, they have a portion of the funds going back to low-income households, but it's on utility bill, I believe. Um, there might be some other form of a dividend. What we want to see is for uh, that uh, close to 100% as possible of the funds going back as a dividend and for it to be really obvious. It needs to be like a check or an EBT that's just cause for celebration every year or every quarter, um, much like the Alaska Permanent Fund. And, and that, we believe, will create the kind of political durability which absolutely has to be part of any um, reasonable carbon pricing proposal. Yeah, no, that's really smart. So I mentioned earlier the connection between a universal income like the in-dividend and the full basic income. Have you been connecting with folks in the basic income space about this? Any interesting collaborations in the work there? Yes, um, definitely. You know, I, so much credit goes to Peter Barnes um, for laying so much of the intellectual foundation for this idea um, of marrying, you know, climate rescue with um, a basic income. Um, his many many books um, have been really, really inspiring, I think. Um, I'm also really excited to see Andy Stern's new book. Our executive director here at CCAN is almost all the way, all the way done. Um, and that's a really interesting angle, looking at the future of the labor movement and Andy Stern's um, apparent conclusion that really what we need is a basic income if we're actually going to be looking out for working class families. Um, and so looking to obviously link up with him and explore whether SEIU and other unions are of the same mind. Um, obviously going to be a little different, um, but, but maybe there's some potential there. Um, and then I think it's really fascinating to see how um, out of the Bay Area where you all are with so many who've made a name for themselves in um, technological innovation really are looking for how the productivity gains from automation aren't going to just be concentrated um, like capital in the in the hands of the few but can actually provide for more free time and more time for all of us um, to enjoy our lives and for that work that that labor that needs to be done to be spread out um, more evenly and how a basic income is the beginnings of that. Um, and Scott Stantons has been um, a great new ally as he spreads the word, I think increasingly uh, a fee on carbon at, as a source of that initial basic income revenue is gaining traction. You, you came to this movement from the environmental angle. I, I'm wondering just like what it's like to suddenly find yourself kind of involved in two movements simultaneously, but at the intersection of them. <laughs> it's fun, honestly, it's great. Because um, I guess any any one movement has its culture and its habits and its characters. And I mean, frankly, I'm, I'm refreshed to be um, part, of, part of another one simultaneously right now. And uh, I think in terms of the intellectual firepower, the potential for actually financing some really hard-hitting campaigns and just shaking up some of the thinking around climate a bit um, that the universal basic income movement and its and its proponents are really important to my work right now um, 
And the examples, particularly around Give Direct and, and other on the ground working studies of how um, direct cash, unconditional direct cash transfers are such a smart solution to poverty, um, that those examples really help me make the case for the dividend um, in often circles where I am talking to progressives who sound like far ring right wing conservatives and not trusting the public and not trusting um, poor households to spend money wisely. Um, it's kind of a weird position to be in, but it's it's thanks to the universal basic income movement and and people again making it happen on the ground that I can say well actually you know this was experimented in XYZ places and we know that it's spent on things that people need like education or food on the table or paying off debts um, and it's helping people get ahead and contribute to our economy and have a life of dignity and that's what we should be offering with these carbon funds um, so I, I think it's really exciting and I hope more people join me in this um, intersection of the Venn diagram. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for talking to us, Camila. Really exciting to hear what you're working on. Thank you both. And I um, hope that folks will contact me with any questions. It's the, the climatesolution.com is the national campaign. And then I can be found at uh, the Chesapeake Climate Action Network over here in D.C. All right, awesome. Yeah, super exciting stuff. I feel like campaigns like this are sort of a necessary first step to, if, if we're going to dream about a national basic income, first we're going to need these kind of intermediary steps that obviously have a lot of impact on their own. Absolutely. We're looking to introduce and, and pass a bill here in D.C. next year, so um, come on over and join us. <laughs> yeah, and definitely keep us posted on that. That was Camila okay. Thorndike of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network on the Basic Income Podcast. Please subscribe. And while you're over there at iTunes, please rate us and review. That'll help other people find the podcast. Have a good one.